Hey, how's it going? This is Craig Cannon, and you're listening to Y Combinator's podcast. Today's episode is with Ann Wojcicki and Sam Altman. Ann's the co-founder and CEO of 23andMe, and they provide direct-to-consumer genetic testing. And Sam's the president of YC Group. He interviewed Ann for a series called How to Build the Future, and you can check it out on our YouTube channel. All right, here we go. Today we are here with Ann Wojcicki, co-founder and CEO of 23andMe. Thank Hi. you very much. Thanks, Sam. We always like to start with how you came up with the idea and sort of the founding story of the company. So I was working on Wall Street. and That doesn't sound very fun. <laughs> it was actually. It was fun? Yeah, I loved it. So I grew, up, I grew up in academia. I always thought I'd end up being an academic. Um, I got very, my parents, I went to a job fair right out of college. My parents made me go. Um, and I got this job offer uh, to go on Wall Street. And it's one thing I always tell young people, like, you never really know what's going to come your way. Yeah. Like, just take every opportunity. So I very randomly got this job on Wall Street. I had no idea what it was, but I kind of figured, like, I actually only took the interview because they gave me free frequent flyer miles. Or I wanted the flight. I wanted the frequent flyer miles. Um, oh, so, they just, they, you had to fly there, but you got to keep the frequent flyer miles. Yeah, yeah, no, I was just excited. I was like, it's a free trip. Like, it will be 5,000 miles. Like, that's pretty awesome. Um, so, um, so I was on Wall Street for 10 years, and I loved it. Like, for me, it was... Because it wasn't just about, like, trading and making money and doing these things, but it was like, I got to learn about companies and the thing the one thing that is amazing on Wall Street is that you get to go like you get to go deep on certain companies when you're really interested in them and then really broad knowing a whole sector so I got to know small cap biotechs and pharma companies and um, hospital systems and insurance companies and I got to have like a really broad landscape of healthcare and you know, in the beginning, I had this eternal optimism, like healthcare is going to, you know, totally change. Um, there's antibodies. There's all this like new, you know, there's like technology. Like there's all these new discoveries coming. It's going to be so different. And then when the bubble burst in 2000, um, a lot of innovation dried up, and I started to see more what healthcare really is. And and at the end of the day, healthcare is an amazing business that really effectively monetizes illness. And I used to always say, you know, if I successfully get you to never be diabetic, no one makes money. But if you do become diabetic, there's all kinds of ways I can make money. And at the end of the day, when I think about what I care about, what's in the best interest of me, like, I'd rather just never be diabetic. I'd rather never be sick. And there's no one in the system today that really thinks about how to keep me healthy. So after 10 years of investing, I felt like I really understood the system, and I also understood that you had this, all these people with the right intentions who really care, but the ship's just pointing in the wrong direction, and that no one's actually focused on keeping people healthy, and that I wanted to have a company that was frankly somewhat rebellious and was going to inspire people to try to really be healthier. And, um, you know, and I felt like it was... Um, you know, again, it had sort of that, you know, a little bit of a Robin Hood kind of mentality in the beginning of, you know, we have to, you can't change the system from within. Yeah. Um, so we got to do something more radical from outside. One of my favorite Charlie Munger quotes is uh, incentives are a superpower. And I always believe this. And I think this is the clear problem you just identified. So how do you think about how you, how you design a system or a company that incentivizes, that is incented to keep people healthy? Well, I realize like the main thing in healthcare is that you don't actually ever have a voice. Like you don't, like you don't actually, because you're not the payer in healthcare, like you, the individual, you don't actually make decisions. It's, you know, your insurance company, your doctor, the pharmacy benefit manager, 
there's all kinds of people in the back who actually make decisions. And I think there's all this data now about, um, you know, you go in for surgery and there's doctors coming into the surgery that you've never even met. So for me, what was transformative, like what we did to change the incentives, um, is to put you in the power seat. Because I feel like, like you make retail decisions that are in your best interest because like you're actually the one paying the bill. So for us, like what we decided to do that was and frankly like seen as disruptive is we are direct to consumer. I remember when you launched doctors were just or healthcare professionals in general were saying, patients this is this is irresponsible, you know, you need a medical professional to do this. Like we can't I remember one quote that really stuck with me. Something like, We can't have people making their own healthcare decisions. They don't know how to interpret yeah. the data. There was all kinds of interesting. <laughs> there's like a whole. There's all kinds of interesting things because people would publish stuff on Facebook, and then doctors would say like, "Do you have the right?" And we'd remind people like, "Yeah, it's their own yeah. information." So there's always been, I'd say, a tension a little bit with the medical system. And the medical system, um, historically, there's tests like the pregnancy test. The pregnancy test, um, when it came out, was seen as radical. Like, how could women ever possibly learn at home that they're pregnant? Um, and if you look at the literature of you know that era, it, like we look at that today and we'd say it's crazy. Um, so one of my favorite papers is there's this um, JAMA paper, uh, the Journal of um, American Medical Association from 1969, I think, where they asked doctors, would you tell your patients that they have cancer if they had a cancer diagnosis? And over 90% of them said no. So I always put that in context of like, it, it helps people understand, like, physicians were trained in such a way, and so I don't blame the system or, or the individuals. It's just that, like, that was the culture that was thought of, like, what was actually in your best interest. And I think what we do is, like, as we empower consumers, we are showing that people actually can be, like, people want to be in charge of their health, they want the information, and they actually want to be in control. I always like the sort of model of thinking about the world 50 or 100 years from now and looking back, what will we think was just totally ridiculous? Yeah. And this sure seems like... I think healthcare is that type, because healthcare is like really, um, as much as it's science and it's data-driven, it's also not. Like part of um, what people don't necessarily always understand is that the practice of medicine is, is an art. Like you can go, the reason why you can go to five different physicians and get five different ways of, um, you know, treating cancer is because... There's the practice of medicine. You can get different opinions. And one of the things that we're specifically trying to change is exactly that, is exactly to say that um, we're trying to get data so that it's no longer a question of like, hey, Sam, like what, what's the best in your best interest? That there's actually data to say exactly what you should be doing. How do you think the medical system or the healthcare system overall uh, will we'll eventually get to a place where we don't have this misalignment of incentives you talked about and we have data and we have people in control of their own health care. Like, if you could wave a magic wand and say, I'm going to fix the healthcare system, what needs to happen? I think the reality is what needs to happen is never going to happen, um, which is like you have a universal payment system. Um, so single coverage. Like, the reality is like, who cares about keeping you healthy today? Because you could, be, you could be overweight and you could eat poorly and you can never exercise and you won't see the consequences of that for the next, let's say, 20 years. So the reality is, like, who's going to benefit from that? And the reality is, like, it's society and it's, it's you personally and it's, like, you know, somebody who's willing to invest in you in the long run. And I think for a single-payer healthcare system or, like, a country, um, they care about actually trying to keep you healthy for as long as possible. I think second, um, people, like, we don't want, we saw that communism doesn't yeah. 
support the, the, the system that we all want. Um, people have to be willing to spend money and they have to step up. And I think the same way you see people stepping up with yoga and vitamins and weight loss studies and um, you know all kinds of different alternative cares, people at, the end, people at some point have to step and say like, your health is also your responsibility. And I think the more that we can give people personalized information about themselves, the more that they are gonna be willing to execute on taking care of themselves. Speaking of that, you could have started any, so many different companies in the healthcare space. Uh, how did you decide this was, what, this was not an obvious choice at the time? For me, it was totally obvious. So for me, there's a couple things that were happening. One, I always loved genetics. It was my first investment in 1996. Um, and so in some ways it was my first and it was my last. So the genetic revolution was happening. Like right in, when I started investing, um, there was the race of like, you know, getting the, the cost of the genome down. It was super exciting. Um, and I started looking at those investments again and realizing that you're gonna be able to buy essentially a scan of your entire genome pretty inexpensively. And so that was the first nugget of like, okay, wow, you can actually start to get huge amounts of genetic information. And second was seeing this world of you know, social networking. That social networking was happening and you don't actually need the old guard to get things to happen. I could crowdsource. So it gave me this idea that, wow, if I just empowered everyone with their genetic information and I crowdsourced all this information, like if I had the world's health information, what could I do? And people were like, well, you could, you know, cure, you could save, you could you yeah. know a lot. So the idea really was, well, we should do that. We should, like, instead of relying on Stanford or Harvard or Pfizer to go and solve a disease or, like, how to be healthy, we, the people, we can do it. So in some ways, like, like having grown up in this Google environment and um, knowing, you know, the social networking world that was coming up, it was piecing those things together that was like combine the technology in, in science with the platform that is really emerging. I've noticed that many of the most transformative companies come because the founder sees some like an intersection of two pretty different but really important trends a few years before everybody else does. Mm -hmm. And this is clearly one of those. It's yeah. like the fact that crowdsourcing works is still amazing to me. Just uh, totally. What's well, also, I think, when a founder really wants something personally, like for me, did you really of, want this person? Oh yeah. To me, it was like like the whole beauty for me of genes of genetics is like you have gene by environment, and I always love like people debating, but is it your genes or is it your environment? I'm like, no. The whole beauty of it is that it's both. So like, you might be genetically high risk for diabetes, but like. There's you your environment. You can do about so it. what yeah. can I do? So very few, you know, genetic ailments are are 100% deterministic, meaning 100% likelihood that you're going to get it. So that means there's an environmental component where you can potentially do something. So let's go figure out what you can do, and then tell people. What was the reaction when you first announced that you were going to do this? Like, what, what was? I mean, well, we I read the, the news. What was it like inside the building? Um, I think there was. You know, it's always like startups are so fun. Um, because you, know, you get a bunch of people who really care, who are really passionate, and um, I think people were excited, and people knew that there would be controversy. And in some ways, um, I think we attract we attract people who have all experienced the healthcare system in their own way and realize it has its limitations. And so there's people who are excited about 23andMe because of the mission, and they're looking to contribute in some way to helping change the system. So there was enthusiasm and we had like videos like we were, you know, we were also, um, 
we were super excited like to launch and we thought yeah. there was going to be like this big coming like everyone and we had tons like we had spit parties we were the cover of the I style section I know we had the cover of the style section um, we had the spit party in the building um, but I have to say like we sold a lot the first day um, and then it was slow that happens um, and <laughs> we were probably selling 20 to tw you know 15 to 25 kits a day which is not a lot how do you, well, for, I guess two questions. One, how did you eventually fix that? And, and how did you, how do you as a leader keep momentum in the building when, you know, you have this great launch, everyone, the first day is always awesome. And then you have what we call the trough of sorrow. Yeah. And people get pretty demotivated. I think the trough, so that's actually a good, like, there's, a, there's always a trough of sorrow. And I think it's important to not let people be um, totally you know, to not like not be wait, hoping for immediate success and then to be overly distracted by the trough of sorrow. And I think that that actually happens not just in launches, but every time you come up with a product, you have no idea how, how well it's going to go. Uh, like I remember when my sister first launched, launched AdSense and she's like, I don't know, you know, we'll see how it goes. Like it's kind of, you know, it's an experiment. We have no idea. And, um, and then clearly it went on, but part of it is because you like you work hard at it. And I feel like for us in that trough of sorrow, like we um, we recognize like more we fo we focus on the long term like what do we need to do to get to this point and I think as a leader for me one of the most important things is not to wallow on today but to wallow on like okay in two years this is what it's going to look like and these are the steps I need to do to get there people love a vision and people love a plan you just need to outline like this is where we're going so when we saw that sales were slow we're like people don't understand genetics <laughs> Some basic market research could have told us that, um, but like people don't know why they want their genetics. And then it was like, okay, great. Now we actually need to like educate the population about why, like why would you want your genetic information? And how did you do that? Uh, so I started changing my talks. Like I get, I would speak a ton. Um, in the early days, like I like you gave me a conference invite and I took it. I remember um, that. Any, <laughs> I remember that for myself. And, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, like any any talk, because yep. part of it is like it's constant feedback. So again, for the people who want to be entrepreneurs, like you just like you're constantly learning, constantly getting the feedback. So I would change my talks. I never gave the same talk twice. Like when I look at my inventory of all my talks, it's like there's like a 500 of them because each one was slightly different. So I remember specifically getting the feedback. People question what is there a value proposition in what you're doing? And I was like, great, I can answer that question. Over 50% of my customers get a medically meaningful re result. And then I started like, start shifting the conversation. So part of it was like getting like real-time feedback um, and part of it was helping us like define what is it that we have to do to show the value. And it was clear people need to understand genetics. They didn't understand the basics. They need to know what is the medical utility of this. Um, and, then, um, and then also people, um, people need to know that they're not the only one. Like that's not weird. Like, yeah. oh, this yeah. is like weird. I did that. We need to drive social like acceptance and you know and part of also is medical acceptance so we did a ton it's one thing I always advise science companies is you can't speak like I can't just tell you like oh we're great we have great science like no one like no one believes that um, so what you need to do is you need to publish like you put like I never even argue with scientists I just hand over my publications like here you go because that's the reality it's like you you speak with your data so like I can make all kinds of claims but like here's my data to to actually support it can you talk about the best decisions you made in the early days? I, people always ask about the worst, uh, mm -hmm. which we can talk about if you want, but I'm curious if you yeah. look back, um, things like that where you learn, like, I need to interact with the scientific community in this way. 
Are there a few decisions you made that, looking sure. back, have been critical to success? I think um, my two, the first two hires, the two founding scientists, are, were just like Brian and Serge were amazing. And so, in some ways, like hiring the right, um, for me, like it was such a critical part of the company. It was the scientific integrity of what we were going to do, and it set a bar of the talent that we are going to hire going forward. Um, so I think in some ways, like having the right people. We, we've made, noticed that it is almost impossible to serve. You can make a lot of mistakes as a company, but if you screw up the first yes. five, seven hires, yes. it's almost so impossible to So there's a good number of, like, when I look at the first 15 people, um, there's a good, there's like a number of them are still here. Um, and, you know, the others who have left, we're still very close to. How did you find those first two scientists? Uh, we found them through a friend of a friend of a friend, who, and they had a similar idea, and so it was a good, it, it worked as a partnership. Um, but it's it's hard. I mean, I would say hiring is one of the hardest things, and I think one of the things that we've tried really hard here in the company is we. Um, there's a lot of smart people who have humility, and there's a lot of smart people who like want to tell you how smart smart they are, and we have opted for the humility. And I think it's really important to have people who are constantly open to feedback and constantly open to, um, you know, constructive criticism and learning about other areas. And I think that's actually one of the things that did make us successful yeah. or, you know, make, allow us to grow and attract other people because it's a group of people who are really eager to learn from others and to keep learning. I've noticed in my own, looking back on my own career, that the big hiring mistakes that I've made are people who are really smart but just awful to work yeah. with because they want to tell you how smart they are. And, 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 and the framework that I finally figured out is it's, you have to look at the net, the net output that a person has on the organization as a whole. Correct. And even if they do a lot themselves, if they make everybody else miserable. I think it's one of the things, um, hiring is always really hard. And I think especially in leadership roles, if you have the wrong person, I think I just recently watched um, one of the old documentaries about Steve Jobs and Bill Gates and Jobs talking about you know how disastrous it was when Scully came. Like I'd kind of forgotten about some of these stories, and I realized I was like, yeah, if you hire the wrong senior leadership, and you don't it can fix sink, it very quickly, it can sink you. You can it can sink you. Yeah. What's it like being in a regulated industry? I, I think one thing that a lot of people say when they think about they they, have, they want to do this really ambitious startup yeah. like genetic testing, but they are afraid because it's regulated. So I think regulation, um, in some ways, there's like so there's pros and cons. In some ways, like when you're regulated, it means that there's rules, like there's like there's like guidelines, and you can figure out exactly um, what that means. So in some ways, like there's more of a path about actually how you have to execute. Um, it definitely also means that it's more expensive. Like there are there's rules, and you don't always agree with all those rules. And um, when we went from an unregulated company to a regulated company, there was definitely uh, a pretty major transition for us because we were used to, um, you know, you hire smart people. What do smart people like to do? They like to question and they like to argue. And so we would question all the time, like, ah, well, why would you need, like, why do you need that test? Or why do you need this study? Why do you need that number of samples? And um, so we would question all the time. And one of the things I think in a regulated environment, again, like, it's like the DMV. There's rules, like you just, and you follow, like there's a level of obedience. Um, so I'd like to encourage people, it's not, it's not so overwhelming to be regulated. Um, that said, it requires a lot of communication. And in some ways it requires a communication style that's not prevalent in Silicon Valley. Right. 
Yes, that is hard. I think that there's a lot. <laughs> people, people, there is an impedance mismatch there. There is, and I think you know we always said like we we thought we were commun- like I look at some of my old communication and I'm like oh wow that's embarrassing now. Um, my the way we thought we were pre- uh, you know communicating appropriately and and how it really wasn't. Um, so there's a style, like there's a style and there's a form and there's like ways, you know, there's actually like there's a path and there's a rule. It's not terribly clear. You know, I think the yeah. regulatory world can do a better job of helping outline. Um, and one thing I do appreciate from now having been regulated for a number of years is that there is a bigger picture that they see. So people who work at the FDA or people who work in government, like it's a public servant job. Like they care. They care about public safety. Like at the FDA, like they care about public safety. There are so many companies, like we can all see them. There are so many companies trying to dupe the consumer. Yes. And their job, like they are there to keep us safe. So I have a lot of respect for what they do. Um, and the onus is on us as, the, as like the startup and the new company. All these people wanting to do things in a new way. The onus is on us a little bit to explain how we're doing it, how that works. And the way they speak, just like I mentioned about scientists, is they speak in data. Like, you can't just say, like, oh, no, no, no. Like, trust me. Like, I'm the good guy. Right. Um, you have to show with data. And you have to show with data in lots of ways. So in that capacity, I don't really mind um, because it's, like, they do know. They know a bigger picture story. You know, some of the people we worked with there, you know, have been there for, you know, 20 years and were amazing. And they have a depth, uh, a breadth of knowledge that I'm never going to have. And so learning, there's input to genuinely take. As you look back, uh, you know, from the day you signed, your vision on the day you signed the incorporation paperwork to now, Mm -hmm. how much has this all played out like you thought it would? Oh, uh, (laughs) it was remarkable. I like, so I actually, because I have this picture of the day we signed and I always look at it and I'm like, one, like I really dressed in a very different way. (laughs) than I do today. Um, But two, um, our Series A documents and our OKRs from 2007 are remarkably similar to what they are today. That's always... So I think we're unusual. So like when like one of our investors, like we, he has said, he's like, what's amazing? He's like, I look back on everything. Like he's like, you're a broken record. In some ways, that's why it's also so easy to do speaking engagements. Like, because I've said the same thing now for a decade. Um, we like we're va- we have a mission. We have a drive. Like I know where we're going, um, and it's it's been we've been we're continuously executing on it. The best companies are remarkably steadfast in that. And I think it's hard to do because entrepreneurs sort of by definition like to start doing new things. Right. So I think one of the hardest things for entrepreneurs, like, and again, we're going back to sort of that like the you know the era of I forgot we called it the era of sorrow. The like, trough. Of sorrow. The trough of sorrow. Um, I think it's important to to stick with it. Like one of the things I think like the one of the most important things I think I've learned at this like doing this now is um, the importance of persistence. Um, like you have to stick with it, and when you stick with it, you really see a benefit. And there's things that I see now. Now that I've done it for over a decade, um, and I try. Like one of our missions is to tell people anyone can be a scientist, anyone, any age level. Like it's part of the whole reason we're directing consumer. Like I believe anyone. You can be eighth grade level, like, and you have the the ability. I love it now when kids come to me and they're like, "Oh, I saw you speak, and because of you, like, I really." I was like, yeah, like even though I like I, you know, my parents didn't know anything and I didn't really have that degree, like I'm now in a PhD program at MIT. Like I get amazing stories. And you never in some ways um 
it takes a long time to see the consequences of your actions. Yeah. So it's one of the things I emphasize to people, like if you really care about something, like if you're really passionate, it takes a decade to really see the impact. It, yeah, I mean, it's like compound growth. It's always misunderstood. It always takes longer and then the magnitude and the, the, the out years is always bigger than you right. think. And I think what happens is that people come, they like hear the WhatsApp story, they hear other stories. And, and, and I say, like, you, it, the real story is, like, the companies that continue to persist, even if there's challenges. Yeah. And everyone usually, like, the WhatsApps are, are the rare, but, like, you can be super consistent. And that's one thing, like, when I see the press about us now, um, it's overwhelming. Like, we just persisted. Yeah. That's it. We no, don't that, go away. That, that is and, the secret to overnight <laughs> success is yeah. 10 years of persistence. I, yes. The overnight success is that 10 years of persistence. Um, so you've done all these remarkable things as a company, and, and the one that I think is... Uh, most remarkable or sort of most important to the future of the world is that uh, I think in the last 11 years, genetic testing, because of you, has gone from something that people are afraid of to something that is now accepted as a really important part of putting people in charge of their lives and their health. Um, but I'd love to hear what the next 11 years look like. And you know, if we had this conversation in 2029, what we would be talking about and your proudest accomplishments then? So I said, like, my, my original mission, like, if you think back to my Wall Street days, was like, I think the system is broken. Like, how am I going to be healthy? So success for me is like, I would like to be healthy to 100. So I now know I have my genetic information. I can learn about things. And I have set up this research machine where... I can collect data from all my customers. We can make discoveries. We give those discoveries back to our customers. I have this amazing machine for discovery. Now I want to execute on the vision of like, I would like to be healthy at 100. So like success for me is how do I now, I just empowered you, I have 5 million people empowered to learn about themselves and they could keep coming back. We collectively as a 5 million you know, person community and growing, is that the biggest genetic data set in the world? By far, yeah. That's awesome. With health information. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but like, to me, that's where like, there's a power in what we can do now um, to make discoveries about prevention. So we have the drug discovery arm. To me, I look at it as like, we have two aspects. Like you're, like, you're healthy yep. today. You want to keep staying healthy. Um, you have a condition that like, you just have this. Like, so we want to have drug discovery for that. Now we'd like to keep you healthy. And I think about who... Like, what are the partnerships I can do? What's, like, what, what's the community I can form to actually help you make behavior changes? So one thing I, I, I see all the time when I meet people, like, again, all economic levels, all um, socioeconomic groups, um, people want to be healthier. They don't necessarily know how. And I see this, like, you know, people don't necessarily know, like, oh, were the Doritos really bad? Is soda really bad? Like, it's remarkable how much, like, there's a disconnect between, like, you hear things, but you don't really know what are the ways that we're going to be able to help Have people healthier. Have you discovered anything that is, I mean, obviously, the whole point of this is it's personalized, but any generally accept, any, any general trends that you've discovered that apply to a lot of people they might not already be aware of? Like, I think most people know they probably shouldn't drink so much soda. No, but there's probably people, like some people who could absorb more sugar than others. I think those are the types of things. Like, we're all pretty different. Like, yeah. the beauty of humanity is that you're meant to survive. Like, you just look at, you can yep. look at it from the perception of viruses. Like, you have the 1918 flu, lots of people died, some people survived, some people are immune. The same thing with, you know, foods. Like, some people just can eat a lot of sugar. Some people can't. And that's why, like, we are still around on the planet today. Um, so I think the main thing that I would say I take away is that there's a, re there's a lot of variability. 
100%, like, you shouldn't smoke, you should exercise more, you should eat better. But the reality is, like, there's some people who can smoke and never get cancer. There's some people who can eat a lot and they never get overweight. Like, some people don't, exercise doesn't really matter. How far away are we from someone being able to spit in a tube and you tell them, like, here's what you need to do to have a good shot of living to 100? So that's one of the things that's most exciting, is, like, what we can do by having a community of people who are all engaged we're starting to do what we call these intervention studies. So we did our first one on um, weight loss. So we had 70,000 people doing you know, a six-arm weight loss study. So that's the first time we're doing it in that kind of scale, specifically to see, based on your DNA, are there differences in weight loss? Um, I'm also, I'm personally obviously motivated in the Parkinson's space of people who are genetically high risk. Are there behaviors that can lower your risk? And how much then can you lower your risk? So we're starting to do those types of studies specifically because, like, that's what our customers want. Like, our customers specifically want to know exactly what you just asked. Like, tell me what to do. So, like, my like when you say again, success for me is like at the end of this decade, I will tell you what to do. At the end of like by 2020. Well, I I look at it as like I look at it as like ah, well, no, I look yeah, end of yeah, the next 10 years of the company. So I'm already 10. I'm 12 years in. So like, give me another eight years. That's pretty exciting. I'm on it. I'm on it, Sam. <laughs> <laughs> I will follow the instructions to the letter. Thank you very much for taking the time. Oh, you're welcome. Anytime. It's really fun. Super fun. All right. Thanks for listening. So as always, you can find the transcript and the video at blog.ycombinator.com. And if you have a second, it would be awesome to give us a rating and review wherever you find your podcast. See you next time.